You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Tom Brokaw was the anchor and managing editor of the NBC Nightly News for 21 years. He's the author of the best-selling book, The Greatest Generation. His new book is Boom, Voices of the 60s. Thank you for joining me, Tom. My pleasure, Rick. Tom, the way you bracket the 60s, you have them begin in 1963 with the assassination of JFK. They end in 1974 with the resignation of Richard M. Nixon. Right in the center is the year 1968, and that's a pivotal year for this nation. It'll always be in bold print, I think, in, uh, at the front of history books. Uh, just stop and think about it for a moment. Four years earlier, Lyndon Johnson had been elected in a landslide over Barry Goldwater. He gets challenged within his own party. Gene McCarthy comes within seven points of him in New Hampshire, forces him effectively from office. We have the Tet Offensive, which is a real psychological victory for the Viet Cong in Vietnam. Think of Al-Qaeda now invading the Green Zone and occupying our embassy. That's what happened in Vietnam. In pure military terms, it was not a great victory, but it did give this country grave second thoughts about the wisdom of that war. Bobby Kennedy gets into the race. Dr. Martin Luther King goes to Memphis as part of the Poor People's Campaign. He's struggling to maintain control of the civil rights movement because black power advocates like H. Rap Brown and others have come in. In Memphis, he is assassinated by what the investigators said was a lone sniper, but his family still doesn't believe it was the act of one man. In June, Bobby Kennedy and Gene McCarthy are locked in a very tight race uh, to challenge Hubert Humphrey, the Democratic nomination. Bobby Kennedy is murdered in Los Angeles. We're just in June at this point. Uh, after the Dr. King assassination, there were urban riots across the country. The black neighborhoods went up in flames and in great rage. Uh, we move into the summer of that year. Richard Nixon has res- resurrected himself from the political dead. In 1962, in this state, he said, you won't have Dick Nixon to kick around anymore. Now he's the leading candidate for president of the United States. Chicago, Democratic Convention, riots again. The Democratic Party begins to tear itself apart. That fall, George Wallace gets into the race. He is a segregationist, governor of Alabama, runs as a seg and as an economic populist, saying, if you lie down in front of my limousine, that'll be the last limousine that you demonstrate in front of. Richard Nixon wins that year by a slim, very slim margin against Hubert Humphrey. And then, on Christmas Eve, three astronauts circumnavigate the moon, and we see the Earth rise, that iconic photograph. That's just one year, and I've left out a number of things. One of the things that interests me is the way you describe the Democratic Party tearing itself apart after that convention. It was a complete dissolution. And we're seeing some similar kind of seams now, both based around an unpopular war and extreme protesters who are alienating the core, some of the core middle people of the party. Big difference between now and then is that there was a draft on then, and the young people uh, were protesting not just out of a sense of moral outrage, but also out of a sense of self-protection in many cases. And the great student activist of the time, um, Sam Brown, who uh, organized for Gene McCarthy and others said, when we did not support Hubert Humphrey that fall, it was a big mistake. 
Humphrey announced in September in Salt Lake City that he would stop the bombing at the North, that he would try to achieve peace. He was a great old liberal warrior of the Democratic Party. He spoke out strongly in 1948 for civil rights when no one else was doing it. They walked, the young people did. And Humphrey still almost beat Richard Nixon. Uh, but between them, Richard Nixon and George Wallace got 60% of the vote that fall. That was a statement about where the country was. In your book, we kind of expect to, to meet people like Sam Brown. I didn't expect to meet Karl Rove, nor did I expect to hear that he admired George Wallace. Well, he doesn't really say he admires him. He said that he saw a true demagogue at work there. He did say that he admired Bobby Kennedy and Nelson Rockefeller. Uh, what he said was that he, he had a palpable sense of the fear that George Wallace could convey. Uh, Karl Rove, one of the things that, about the 60s is that when people, when you say to someone the 60s, they immediately conjure up visions of flower children in Golden Gate Park, the sounds of the mamas and the papas and Bob Dylan in the background, smoking a little dope in Haight-Ashbury, and the riots in Chicago. But the whole country was involved in the 60s. There really was a hard-hat working-class resistance to what was going on in the Democratic Party, and Richard Nixon exploited that. Pat Buchanan called it the silent majority. And they said, are these the people that you want running the country, and ran successfully against what they said were the excesses of that time. In your book, there are people you can't or don't interview, yet they're central characters. I'm thinking of Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy. Could you talk about writing a book about people, of, uh, conducting a book of interviews about people who you can no longer interview? Well, I had interviewed both of them and, and spent time around them, so I felt familiar with them. They were not abstract figures to me. Uh, and they were... An, both of them were an enormous presence in our lives. And uh, I think Dr. King particularly, uh, because of all that he achieved by the time that he was assassinated, uh, 500 years from now, 1,000 years from now, will be seen as a great American historic figure. Bobby Kennedy, unfortunately, tragically, was, shut, was cut down before he could have the full realization of his political goals and his political ambitions. It's his brother that people will remember most of all for being elected president. Bobby Kennedy will always be the martyred candidate who grew more than almost any other political figure that I've ever seen before your eyes. He, he'd been a very combative, kind of ruthless figure, uh, quite conservative in his politics. But that year, you saw the evolution of Bobby Kennedy. And he was the one who was not afraid to go to the college campuses and tell the truth and say to them, how many of you have deferments? Almost every hand would go up and he'd say, that's wrong. You're allowing working class kids from the ghetto to go to Vietnam. You have to think about that. One of the other characters in this book who's very interesting is a gentleman who's reporting on the events throughout. His name is Tom Brokaw. Right. <laughs> and and it, as I read the book, I felt that the Tom Brokaw I was seeing portrayed felt himself to be outside the events of history, yet the Tom Brokaw who was writing the book knew that that Tom Brokaw back then was part of the history. Sure. You, you, you know, when you're a journalist, you don't give up. Uh, participation or citizenship or fatherhood or being a husband or having normal human reactions. You try not to let them play out on the air, however. It was not my intention to put myself as fully in the book as I, as I ended up doing, but when I began to write it, uh, both my editor at Random House and two other people who have been working with me on these books in the past, uh, Frank Gannon and, and Liz Boyer, said, we want to hear your voice more. And 
when I thought back on it, it only made sense. People would like to see what I was reacting to, the prism that I saw the 60s through. And in my case, um, you know, I often say that I had one foot in the psychedelic waters of the 60s and the other foot on the terra firma of the 50s. I, because I was born in 1940, I was not a classic baby boomer. In this book, we see a lot of humor. I, I really like, I thought it was, there, there are lots of parts that, that are very funny. And I'm wondering, uh, you get the humor of hindsight when uh, Haldeman describes your yeah, right. great decision. Um, tell us a little bit about that offer well, and I the decision. Known, I, I actually known Bob Haldeman. I, I remember Bob Haldeman in Santa Cruz when he was a regent at the University of California in 1967. And he was running J. Walter Thompson, a big advertising agency in Los Angeles. And they had the account for promoting NBC, which is where I work. And the account executive was Ron Ziegler. Think about that for a moment. And uh, so I got to know Holman reporting on what was going on in the state. And we didn't see the world the same way, obviously, but he always thought that I was fair and kind of a rising young professional. Nixon gets elected, Holman's chief of staff. It's not going real well with Ron Ziegler as a press secretary at the, at the end of the first year. This is well before Watergate, mind you. And so Haldeman uh, makes an overture, uh, and he clears it with the president. They'd like me to be the press secretary. My heart sank. I, I got kind of nauseous when they, when they talked about it. And I thought, oh my, I staggered back to the office and said, how do I get out of this to my boss? And he called New York, and uh, one of the major executives at NBC was going to be in Washington the next day and said, look, we've just signed him to a new contract. We have big plans for him. And so I sealed everyone's lips on this one. I, I swarmed to secrecy, including Haldeman. Holman, then Watergate does come along. Holman goes to jail, and, and uh, the president's disgraced. I'm now the anchorman of NBC Nightly News, and we're doing a retrospective at Hofstra University on the Nixon years, and I get this big bear hug from behind me, and it's Bob Holman saying, do you know how many times I've looked at you and thought, I could have sent him to jail? Well, there was no way I would have become part of that conspiracy. During the 60s, there were two huge movements that started to make a lot of change. There was the civil rights movement, which had started earlier, but really came to fruition in the 60s, and women's rights movements. Which started later, by the way. And, but it, we've, those conversations have begun, but they haven't really ended, and we haven't really solved those problems, have we? No, and um, I, on, on civil rights especially, I thought that we would be a lot farther down the road. Now, we've made enormous gains. Andrew Young, who was Martin Luther King, one of his principal lieutenants, says Martin would be amazed by the gains that have been made. We do have a real black middle class and a professional class uh, now, but we also have uh, a deeply rooted black underclass that in some neighborhoods is in worse shape than it was at that time because the black family culture has been assaulted by so many forces, including drugs and absentee fathers and, and, and the corrosive effect of a lot of government policies. The feminist movement, which is interesting, in 1968, at the height of the civil rights and of the anti-war movement, women were treated in a clerical capacity. They were expected to get coffee and get lunch. Uh, H. Rapp Brown said at one point, the only position for a woman is the prone position. Think about that. It's amazing. And then by 1970, women began to take hold. And I remember in 1972, of the conventions, as the Democratic Convention, you have the likes of Bella Abzug and Shirley MacLaine, and the women's voices were being heard a lot more. One of the things I really enjoyed about this book were the people who weren't famous. Uh, 
their stories are, are, are charming and, and power, as powerful as those any of the people we know so well. Well, that's the way it should be. That's the way it is in life. You know, I, um, when I wrote about the greatest generation, the World War II generation, the ordinary people were the ones who really came through in that book because they rose to extraordinary heights and made great sacrifices and went back to their lives of putting this country together. In the 60s, much the same thing happened with women and with uh, active members of the civil rights movement. Uh, there's a man by the name of uh, Charles Desmond who was a pool hustler in Massachusetts and, and his dad was kind of a drunk and a junk collector and he kind of went off to school not knowing what that meant and he wasn't doing too well except at playing pool where he was making a lot of money off preppy kids. Finally, the dean told him to go get his act together, and he immediately got drafted, and he was in Vietnam before he knew it. And he was in a very heavy battle. He won the Silver Star. And he made a pact with God that if he got out of it, he'd go back and straighten out his life. He's now the vice chancellor of the University of Massachusetts system. I mean, that's a wonderful story. Uh, and I love the story, too, uh, of Ellie and Tom Coakley, who met in, in Vietnam, or not in Vietnam, Walter Reed. After. Tom and Ellie are, I think out of this book, they're going to be the big stars. That's my guess. Everybody reacts to him. Tom was a hockey star at Brown, came from a prominent upstate New York family. He probably could have made arrangements to get in the reserve, but his dad said, you know, if you do that, someone else will have to go. So he went to Vietnam, lost a leg in combat, came back to Walter Reed. There was this um, Irish Catholic nurse who was the daughter of an army brat. And uh, Nellie had wanted to go to Vietnam. She felt strongly about serving her country. Uh, she didn't want to get involved with Tom. A, he was a sergeant, not an officer. And as she said, he was missing a body part. And I didn't want anything to do with people who were missing body parts. But uh, the chord was struck. Uh, they got married. Uh, he was a very successful businessman. They began to have families. And then 10 years into their marriage, she began to think about Vietnam and reading about it. And she remembered vividly a young man who died in her field hospital by the name of Richard Burns. And she touched his cheek shortly after he died and looked out into the sunshine and the beautiful foliage of Vietnam and thought, I know and his mother doesn't know. And the story that's in Boom is about how she got in touch with that family and how she went to the wall with Richard Burns' brother, who every year on Richard's birthday takes two cans of Budweiser to the wall. He drinks one and leaves one behind. Uh, there are a lot of people like that out there in America who went to Vietnam, had very traumatic experiences, came back to become great citizens and to think about the terrible unhealed wounds of that war, emotional and otherwise. We're, even as we speak, we're in the midst of a war where there is no draft and we're seeing a lot of more economic inequality and injustice in this country. And it troubles me. I, I, I worry about, we do have an all-voluntary army now, and we have terrific young people who are volunteering for it. They're both men and women. A lot of guard units that are called up. I've been in Iraq a lot, and I'll run into somebody. I remember coming out of there in a C-5, when there was a medical evacuation plane, and the nurse in the back of the plane was hooking up the IVs and we began to talk. I said, where are you from? She said, South Carolina. My kids are with my grandparents. And I said, well, are you a single mother? And she said, no, my husband's in the cockpit. We both were activated from our guard unit. So think about the penalty for that. While the rest of us here at home are paying no penalty. We're not making any sacrifices. 
So these working class families are, the great burden falls to them. And as I go around the country, I just say to other folks, look, you can hate the war with every good reason. All the premises turn out not to be true. It's not gone well. But these families who wait at night for a phone call they hope will never come, or are trying to put their lives back together because a child has been killed or maimed, they deserve our friendship and support. You know, to me, this book seemed like a, a, a plea for moderation. It's a, plea, it's a plea for finding common ground. It's a plea for stop the polarization, stop the sophomore food fights, let's move the country forward. You know, the genius of FDR was the greatest political figure of my lifetime. I was born in 1940, I don't really remember him, but I've read enough about him to know, was that he cobbled together from all the disparate parts of this country a coalition that got us through the Depression and then got us through World War II, two of the greatest challenges this country will ever face. And he did it in a cheerful way without abandoning his own personal political principles. That's what I'm looking for again. We've been speaking with Tom Brokaw. His new book is Boom, Voices of the Sixties. Thank you for speaking with me, Tom. Thank you, Rick. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.